1: a woohooer! a hand-clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com,
0: choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret. Violent green is people. Need my sister and my daughter.
2: What's in the box?
1: Hello and welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we will be spoiling the new Wes Anderson stop-motion animated movie, Isle of Dogs. Here to talk with me about Isle of Dogs are Slate's culture and tech writer, Inku Kang. Hi, Inku. And Slate's culture editor, Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest.
0: Hey, Dana. Uh,
1: All right. Isle of Dogs. There's a lot to talk about here. This is, I mean, one thing I can definitely say about this movie is it's densely packed with characters, incidents, plot twists, animated details. So we have a lot to spoil. Um, But let's go around really quickly and get a reaction. Yes? No? Forrest, you go first.
0: Um, I loved this movie. I'm a little worried that I might be sort of made to hate this movie over time. Uh, I do think there are some problems with it, but I I think overall my reaction the first time seeing it was, you know, use, you use the word dense. I found it kind of overwhelmingly delightful to the extent that I couldn't wait to go see it again to see all of the sort of jokes and visual touches sort of colored in in the margins. Um, and also as with the first time I saw Grand Budapest Hotel, I was disturbed by the kind of underlying darkness that lingers under the whole movie. And when I saw Budapest Hotel the second time, I went from thinking it was a charming, delightful film to just like weeping uncontrollably in the theater. I'm curious whether that will happen to me the second time I see this movie or whether I will just think, oh, that was a fun and like somewhat questionable movie.
1: And so, so you would say the second time with Grand Budapest, you deepened your appreciation. It continued to be admiration.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first time I saw... Budapest Hotel it was like wow this movie is so dense and feels kind of rushed and there's like you know a, a nesting doll structure of of like four different narrators and this is like why is it like this and then the second time you see it or the second time I saw it I came to understand it that it was that way because all of the characters were so deeply sad that they were just like rushing um, past the dark parts that they couldn't it was, like, too painful for them to talk about. And that became more clear the second time. And so there are all these dark parts in this movie, and I don't know whether it's working with a similar structure or
1: not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a lot to say about that. But first, I want to know, Ingu, what was your basic reaction walking out?
2: I had two. The first was yuck. The second was yawn.
1: Mm-hmm. So...
2: um I would say I liked it slightly less than Forrested. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a lot of chatter on Twitter when like, the poster came out for this movie and then when the trailer came out for this movie about how it might be racially problematic because Wes Anderson already has a very long history of treating characters of color in less than ideal ways. And I am not at all a fan of Wes Anderson. I find his stories incredible amazingly unresonant and I was already dreading my own dislike of Wes Anderson and I was also just tired of like having to go through this like stupid discussion about like representation one more time with like a director who already has like a history of this and I really tried to like sort of like stay out of it and try to experience it as a pure thing and the movie to me especially the plot Uh, was so dull that like all I could really focus on was like my own annoyance at everything I was seeing on screen
0: (laughs) dull is not a word I expected um we to
1: give my own reaction I want to throw to a clip in a second but I feel like and I think Forrest you've seen this happen a little bit over the course of my years it's like Wes Anderson has slowly won me over I think I started off much more resistant to him and my main resistance to him had less to do with what he was talking about. Although I hate the Darjeeling limited. It's my least favorite Wes Anderson movie for exactly the the reasons you describe for it's kind of Orientalism and it's, it's, it's weird kind of foisting of, of emotional experience off onto Brown people. Um, but what he's done in his last few movies, I feel like from fantastic Mr. Fox to grand Budapest hotel to Moonrise Kingdom, to some extent, he is starting to go deeper. And the thing that I always used to hold against him was that as Accomplished he is as as a visual and auditory filmmaker and a creator of sensations and experiences, that he wasn't growing as a human being, that he wasn't kind of reaching deeper into history or into kind of larger moral questions. And I think that he is trying to do that now and often succeeding at it.
0: Yeah, completely. I I think always liked his movies, though. I um, a- agree with the criticisms that if anybody kind of doesn't know what we're talking about with the criticisms of uh, Wes Anderson's relationship to race in his previous movies, I would recommend this piece that Jonah Weiner um, wrote for Slate a few years ago. I think it's called The Unbearable Whiteness of Wes Anderson or something that goes through both Darjeeling Limited's like weird use of a drowning Indian boy for emotional catharsis for the white main characters um and also just you know his approach to this stuff throughout his career um but yeah i mean budapest hotel like a lot for a long time the criticism of wes anderson was you know he should make a movie about war like what would that be like and then he did it and it's the kind of thing that on paper does not sound like it should work like it is a wes anderson movie that looks like a dollhouse and it's about a hotel and it is also, like, totally about World War II and Nazis and the Holocaust. And I feel like if that were on the poster, everyone would have said, oh, man, this is going to be terrible. But instead, he kind of snuck it in. And in, he, in this movie, it's more on the surface. And I think he may run into more trouble because of that. And also, I'm just not sure, like, he succeeded in the same way he did with Budapest Hotel.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's so much going on in this movie that it doesn't it doesn't all work. But I will say that I walked out of it de- desperately wanting to see it again. All right, before we get too far into this Wes Anderson debate, we should just listen to a clip so we can set up the basic premise to the movie. Here is the clip that we have. This is the sort of core group of dogs who live on the Isle of Dogs. We'll get to what that is, but it's the the trash island to which they've been exiled, and you hear them arguing over a bag of garbage that they've discovered in the ruins. Wait a second. Before we
2: attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs, let's just Open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. I don't
0: know. What
2: do you think? Sure. Maybe. Hi. A rancid apple core, two worm eaten banana peels, a moldy rice cake, a dried-up pickle, a tin of sardine bones, a pile of broken eggshells, an old smushed-up rotten gizzard with maggots all
0: over
1: it. Okay, it's worth it. So to step back and just establish who we're listening to here, this, as we say, is the is the gang of dogs that winds up being kind of the, the group hero of the movie. They're voiced by uh, Edward Norton, mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum, uh, Bill Brian Murray, of Cranston course. Brian Cranston
0: is like sort of the guy who's on the outside who's, who's a, a self-avowed, he's an avowed stray.
1: Chief, right, the Chief. dog who, who doesn't have a, an owner. And Bob Balaban. And Bob Balaban, a Wes Anderson stalwart, playing his dog's name is
0: uh, King. He's a former uh, spokes hound for uh, a dog food company.
1: Right. They each each dog is given a quick backstory. So let's establish how these dogs ended up on this island and what kind of a universe we're living in, which is a kind of unusual universe for Wes Anderson to establish in one of his movies.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of world building in this movie. It starts with a, a prologue um, that is it, it. it's is it all st- still images? I think it's maybe all in the style of of sort of uh, woodblock style prints. There's so there's like at least three different kinds of animation in this movie. There's the stop motion animation, which takes up most of the movie. There's drawn animation, which we see on the TVs. And then there are occasional uh Maybe they're not animated, but uh, like woodblock style prints of of the kind you often see in, in in Japanese art, and so we get this prologue where it's narrated to us that there was like once a great war between basically humans and dogs, um, and I don't, I guess what 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 was the point of that?
1: I mean, the the beginning moves really quickly, but it kind of walks you through this alternate. Japanese history. It's set 20 years in the future in the fictional city of Megasaki. And I think the history that it imagines that there was a cat versus dog war because I remember one really great sort of woodblock print of cats and dogs in samurai costume yeah. fighting each other. And in general, there's this kind of jokey idea that like humans have chosen cats rather than dogs as their key animal. Although interestingly, there's no cat characters at all. You, bear, you see a lot of representations of cats, but hardly any actual cats.
0: Right. It basically comes to represent the the two dominant political parties. So there's the party of sort of cat lovers and dog haters, which are uh, which is led by um, Mayor Kobayashi, uh, who is voiced by um, one of the uh, screenwriters of the movie, whose name is... Kunichi Nomura. Right. Um, so he wrote the movie along with Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman. Anyway, he plays this mayor character who becomes kind of the dystopian big brother big Brother. Figure of this world when he wins an election, um, vowing to expel all of the dogs because they have what are what are the names of the many dog diseases? Snout fever.
1: Yeah, I think snout fever is the only dog, dog disease. It is a pandemic that's spreading among dogs, and that the mayor is falsely claiming is about to spread to the human population. Right? There's a whole fear mongering narrative going on.
0: Yeah. There's, there's maybe there's like several symptoms in one disease. I couldn't quite figure that out. But anyway, there's a fear of of these diseases, and they expel um, the uh, dog Zero, uh, who is Spots, um, who is voiced by Liev Schreiber. Liev Schreiber, right? So there are like twenty five different movie stars in this movie. So it's gonna be hard <laughs> to remember which movie stars play which which dogs. Um, and then uh, we meet a boy named Atari. Uh, Whose name I think we should talk about, uh, who is voiced by a newcomer named Koyu Rankin, who wants to go find this dog um, on the Isle of Dogs, where all the dogs well, have been exiled. An
1: important detail about Atari is that he's the he's the adopted son of the evil mayor Kobayashi. So he was orphaned in a bullet train accident. This is all established at lightning speed in the in that prologue. Uh, And now his his only friend in the world essentially is Spots. So he is the only human owner. And this struck me as a little bit sad in terms of the other residents of Megasaki whose dogs (laughs) were abducted. He's the only one invested enough to figure out a way to get to the island.
0: Right. Yeah. There are others who are fighting for the dogs who are kind of like the minority repor- minority party there. Um, but he's the only one who goes all the way there. And that is one of the best jokes I, I, I thought is when... So they establish Atari's relationship to Spots via this flashback and it ends with Spots ending up on the island in this cage with no way of getting out of the cage. And then there's a subtitle that just says, end of flashback. And... Like, it's one of those first very dark moments, so dark, that everyone in the theater I was in just laughed out loud.
1: Well, the uh, thing is that Anderson has, has been kind of cruel to pets in many of his, right. his well, past movies. Cruel to dogs. And, right? He, and he, doesn't he kill a cat in the Grand Budapest Hotel? Doesn't he throw somebody's pet out the window? I
0: believe a cat dies in Grand Budapest Hotel. A dog named Snoopy dies in Moonrise Kingdom. A dog dies in Royal Tenenbobs when it's run over by a car. It's a, it's a thing.
1: And I had I would have thought that he was anti pet based on that. I mean, it would sort of go with his fastidiousness too that he wouldn't want a, a shedding pet in his house. But you see that he's a real softy in this movie, and that he's he really does love dogs.
0: Right. And in fact, the title is a pun, which is something I did not realize until I read the kicker of your review, Dana.
1: Oh, really? I brought you that illumination. Did, did, did you know that? I didn't catch that. Yeah, you have to say it. Say it a couple times, and then you you have a little glow oh. moment. All right, so we've established the dystopian world that we live in, the dogs being exiled. All of the pets of the city of Megasaki are now on Trash Island. Let's talk about how the boy gets there and what happens when he arrives.
2: So basically, um, you have all of these dogs just sort of like living in a dumpster pile. And it's also important to remember that there actually had been other like indigenous dogs that were like native to Trash Island. And they are sort of like forced out of their own home into like a different island and then they'll come back later. But anyway, so these uh, new dogs that the domesticated ones who are sort of sitting around being like, oh, I miss my master. Oh, I miss having a cushion. Oh, I miss having food to eat. Basically see a plane that crashes on the island and they go to see what the crash was all about. And they discover this boy. Who is mostly intact uh, when he gets out of this plane? He does have, I think, like a piece of equipment sticking out of his head.
0: Right. Which (laughs) is another example of one of these like extraordinarily dark touches. Like this, we should say this movie is rated PG 13. So clearly, these dark and sometimes kind of gory touches were important to Anderson.
2: Riley Morbid. Right. Um, But other than that, uh, basically, the. Because all of the domesticated dogs missed their owners, they decide to help the little boy who is named first uh, the little pilot, and then later we find out his name is Atari. Uh, they decide to help him find his dog, and even though they're sort of like this, like very gossipy dog society where everyone knows each other. No one seems to have heard of this particular dog, which is named Spots. And so they sort of like, decide to uh, go along with the boy's plan to find his dog because they have nothing else to do.
1: Let's talk about the way language is handled because that becomes important, especially when the boy lands on the island. Um from the beginning, you see, and I think you're even told in the in the setup that, we're only going to understand the dog's language in English, right? So that the dog's all voiced by American actors. It says everyone is going to speak in their native tongue or something along those lines. But essentially, we have access to the dog's language directly, whereas pretty much all the Japanese spoken in the movie goes untranslated unless there's an on-site translator occasionally there is an official translator for the government who's voiced by francis mcdormand who you hear doing translation and then later when we get to greta gerwig's character this american student in in megasaki she does some on-site translation but there's lots and lots of japanese flying around that is never translated at all
2: there's also a little bit of little bits of subtitling like here and there that also goes some way in helping us figure out like what's going on, because what Anderson really is content to just sort of let tone of voice convey what a lot of the Japanese characters are thinking, including the boy, Atari.
1: And of course the dogs and the kid don't understand each other. This isn't one of those fictional animal universes where people and animals can communicate. They Except can communicate there is. well, they can communicate in the way that you communicate with your pets, right? But, but they're well, not mutually intelligent. But
0: right. there's also this science fiction element that comes in here. So we see both like this robot dog who is almost exactly the same as the robot dog in Black Mirror. I don't know if you guys had that association. I didn't
1: see that Black Mirror.
0: Uh, yeah, it's in the it's in the newest season. Um but similarly it's just like a, a, a dog who will unrelentingly chase after them like a, a t-1000 or something um and then uh, the, the other science fiction element here which is why i mentioned this is they have these like uh in, implant translators that they can put in what it goes in both the dog's brain and into so like atari wears one on his head and spots wears one on his head and then they can talk to each other in the same it's it's translated for both of them
1: i forgot about that detail because there's so much going on but in general what did you guys think of that choice to to have the dogs be intelligible and not the characters speaking in japanese i mean for example is that part of what bothered you about the movie's racial animus because to me it seemed to me the technique was trying at least to give the the sort of foreignness right the the otherness of japan its own chance to exist in other words it was seemed like some sort of nod at the incompleteness of translation
2: i mean sure if you sort of like see the movie like just only purely as its own thing as existing in a vacuum it's a very interesting exercise but it's a movie where a lot of the Japanese culture is flattened and then also seen as um, inscrutable in a sense. And the fact that like we only understand the Japanese characters through uh, tone of voice, uh, usually in like these like very emotional extremes, I think really added to that like othering process. And so I like that he went for a thing, but he didn't really think about like the cultural ramifications of that experiment
1: i wonder how this movie will go over in japan and and whether that that failure to translate i mean how how can that be translated right of course if you're seeing it as a speaker of japanese that alienation effect doesn't work on you at all
0: yeah i'm really curious about that i also just wonder if there are like any jokes that are not translated or whether there are any jokes in the translations um, there was, you know, this Bong Joon-ho movie, um, called Oak Jaw that came out like a year ago where they snuck a joke into the translation that like you could only get if you spoke both Korean and, and, uh, and English. And it seems like there's an opportunity there in this, in this movie. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, we we're kind of dancing around its relationship to j- Japanese culture in general, or I guess we're just starting to get into it. Um, I have uh I both agree with these criticisms and I also have a, I guess a sort of theory that I'm not sure makes any sense um or not yet uh but I kind of wonder so they call the 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 Isle of Dogs in this movie they they refer to quote the dog displacement camps and part of me thinks that maybe what he was trying to do with this movie is like do a sort of mirror image on the internment camps in America and instead like make all the American char- characters the people who are cast out into these camps and then like make the Japanese characters that people who are doing it. So you kind of end up, if you're an American viewer who only speaks English watching it, you end up, you know, sympathizing with the people or in this case, dogs who are in the camps, um, which I think is interesting to me, but I also could see how one would have problems with that. Cause you're essentially like, if that's what he's trying to do, then you're also like making people in camps into dogs. Um, on the other hand, they're the most sympathetic characters in the movie, in a lot of way, a lot of ways.
1: Well, and there also seem to be possibly accidental inadvertent references to the atomic bomb in these cloud puffs that we keep seeing everywhere, right? Because there's basically a war ends up being declared on the Isle of Dogs. And as you say, there's these mecha dogs that are that are released at one point, which becomes kind of like a kaiju movie right. um, replay. But the way that clouds of smoke, which occur a lot in this movie, um, sometimes because a bomb is being dropped, and sometimes because dogs get in a scuffle, like the one we heard in that, in that sound clip, and they're sort of engulfed in this cloud. The are rendered in cotton in this wonderful three-dimensional way. But some of those moments seemed sort of uncomfortable to me. Like, if you're going to set something in a Japanese fictional town called Megasaki, which sounds a hell of a lot like Nagasaki, Nagasaki, then... To show that, that mushroom cloud, even if that is just simply the physical form that, you know, bomb smoke assumes after it's dropped, I mean, it, it has a, an inextricable historical reference in our minds that he doesn't seem to be acknowledging.
2: <laughs> the historical reference that I thought of while watching this movie, and I can 100% guarantee that Wes Anderson did not think about this, is that because it was set in Japan and because it did sort of relate to this kind of like fear mongering paranoia about a group of mammals. I actually thought of, like, the Korean population in Japan, which faces a great deal of discrimination. And even though they were brought over uh, during World War II and before that as laborers, are to this day still not given, like, equal citizenship status. And so I... I don't know. I think that, like, one of the things that I like about the movie is that you have this, like, very general like archetype of like conflict and so you could apply that in so many different directions but I think the other thing but I think at the same time it that looseness or like that storybookness sort of like annoyed me because it did seem to me again like he didn't have anything to say the villains are so villainous and like the dogs are who you're going to root for and so there was a sort of, like, lack of complexity to it that didn't work for me.
1: I mean, the villains are villainous in the sense that the the mayor is a horrible character, right? But there isn't, there isn't an imputation of his evil to the entire population of Megasaki. I do wish that we knew a little bit more about that town and what the population was like, how they all felt about their dogs being abducted, what they were doing about it. Um, and you do pretty much only get to see sort of two teams of people on Megasaki. The bad guy and his minions, right? The mayor, Kobayashi. And then this other party, the scientific party that's working on a serum, a vaccine to uh, to cure the dog fever and get the dogs back.
2: But they are sort of like portrayed as this like very, they're divided into like camps, but they're mostly like unvariegated. They're just sort of like this like angry, very brainwashable mass, which again, I don't think is a great depiction of like an othered category of people
0: right right i mean i think there are like dog lovers who are sort of in the minority party but they're sort of oppressed and afraid to speak out and then this becomes a a, a problem when the person who ultimately leads the sort of uprising to save the dogs is uh the white person is that oh, yeah here's how, here's where we get student.
1: to the here's where we get to the stuff that really bothered me as well so this is the greta gerwig voiced character named right. tracy who's an American exchange student. She seems to be middle school aged. She's living in Megasaki and she takes it upon herself to report this whole thing out for her school paper, basically to uncover the mayor's corruption and the fact that snout fever is in fact not a danger to the human population. And that's just a, a fake rumor. Not
2: just that, but that snout fever is curable and the mayor is suppressing that information.
1: Right, exactly. Right. There's, there's this team of, of, of scientists, one of which is voiced by Yoko Ono in a great little scene and that I And also is named Yoko Ono right
0: (laughs) right well so that's maybe this is a place to quickly talk about the names because we've kind of mentioned it a couple times so Atari I I mean Ingu I know you wanted to talk about this so maybe you should take this
2: so I was really bothered by the fact that the main uh, the Japanese character that we get to know the most is named Atari because I have never heard of any Japanese person ever being named Atari I looked this up after the movie in the game Go there is a particular move that a player can do that is called like an Atari. And essentially uh, these two California game developers created a company called Atari. And of course we're sort of like um, playing on like the like uh, Japanese fat like in the 80s to make it sound more futuristic or whatever. And so it's not a name. It's just like a Japanese name that Americans know. And for me, the biggest problem with this movie was that it wasn't really about Japanese culture. To me, this movie was about like, having audiences pat themselves on the back for recognizing American stereotypes about Japan. And so you just get like this litany of like very stereotypical Japanese things like bento boxes or sumo wrestlers, none of which are remotely necessary to the plot. It's also the fact that there is no reason why the story takes place. There's no reason why the story should take place in Japan at all, except that Wes Anderson wanted to put all of these like cloying Japanese things in it. But it like... Well, the- I, I kind of
0: feel like, just to briefly interrupt, I kind of feel like I'm still figuring out, like... I mean, do we know? Has he said that's why he set the movie in Japan? I feel like I'm still trying. <laughs> then he of
1: wants to put things to in out. it. I don't think he's right. I guess that. I'm.
0: I'm still trying to figure out why he set the movie in Japan. There are all these, you know, references to um, World War II and atrocities <laughs> and, and and such, which make me think that there he is probably up to something more than than just. Um, wanting to kind of reference the culture. I mean, he has, I know he has said that like he loves um Kurosawa movies and that, and that was part of it. And there are references to, you know, like um the mayor is named Kobayashi, which is the name of like a filmmaker who was a contemporary of um Kurosawa's, which strikes me as not a coincidence. The um, whole
1: story could be a Kurosawa story. I mean, just the story of the dogs yeah. as this kind of band of brothers, you know, there, there's a seven samurai element to the, to the actual narrative, yeah. the quest narrative.
2: Yeah, but Kurosawa are also literally everywhere else. I mean, I don't know. I'm But well, okay, let's, let's, Go ahead. let's
1: for an, for an example, let's take Star Wars, which is a straight up lift from Kurosawa from several different Kurosawa adventure movies, right? The whole series of Star Wars would not exist if George Lucas wasn't in love with Japanese cinema. I mean, do, is there something intrinsically wrong with the filmmaker of one culture who loves the cinema of another culture? using and taking up images and tropes from that cinema in some way
2: i mean of course there isn't i think the point is just that like it to me it felt like a sea of stereotypes whereas the story to me did not feel grounded in anything in japanese culture like you i mean we've sort of been talking about like concentration camps or whatever but also, during World War II, concentration camps were very widespread. And so he could have said this literally anywhere else. And so, I just don't understand, like I, I like it's honestly very hard for me to see why uh, it this would be said in Japan if it weren't just for the fact that like he wanted to put in these little things about like what he knows about Japanese culture. like, for example, uh, we the mayor is tied to the Yakuza. That is a fact that is never brought up, and it plays absolutely no role in the story. But that's like another example of, "Hey, here's this thing that, like, here's this Japanese thing that, like, Americans have heard of. Let's put in the movie, and so like we'll make like a little like kitschy aesthetic thing about it."
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the movie weirdly seems to both be doing everything you're saying and also it seems to be really self-conscious about it and trying to make it into a joke like we mentioned the yoko ono thing so after we meet all of these characters who have um these names that are like um recognizable to uh americans from pop culture um, we finally meet a character who just introduces herself as yoko ono which uh you know you may or may not realize that that character is actually voiced by yoko ono and i think that's the joke, um and similarly, like I feel like the way it uses haikus, um there's like two very prominent haikus that basically end each of the two um sort of wars or battles in the movie. and I think they're kind of both meant to be sincere and funny at the same time. like it seems like
2: inscrutable on purpose, which also just like adds another layer of that like this thing is very beautiful but also sort of just like permanently foreign so the haikus are something like plot development first line plot development second line and then the third line will be something like and then the flowers die in winter or something along those lines very vague and it's a funny joke but it Just adds to that sense of like, I'm looking at this like very beautiful thing from a
1: arm's length and that's where it's going to stay. But isn't that the construction of a classical haiku? The the, the third line is supposed to be a surprise that breaks the scene that's set in the first two lines? How many
2: people going into this movie are going to know that? I mean, you have well,
1: a PhD in literature. Well, but I mean, would it be better if you made a haiku that wasn't? But I mean, I'm saying,
2: like, you're saying it's a very specific joke. But if most people don't have the knowledge base to know what that joke is, then I don't know.
1: I mean, it, then I guess you could argue that he should just not use or invoke haiku in any way. But then I just, then I feel like in some point you're coming down against the idea that any exchange of cultural material could be valuable. And I'm really not saying that. I think that it's
2: like cultures just don't have borders, right? Like they're always going to move around and with the passage of time and with migration, they're going to change into different things. That's just how the world works. The thing that bothers me is that it just doesn't feel to me, as a non-Japanese person, it just doesn't feel to me like something that is about Japanese culture. It feels more like a sort of like knowing, like, self congratulatoriness about American visions of Japan, specifically, like, ones that are sort of, like, rooted in a kind of, like, nostalgia.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that at one point, another um, thing that I've heard about the origins of this movie is that at some point, Wes Anderson said that at some point he was thinking about making this movie as um, having, <laughs> this is going to be really confusing, so bear with me, he was thinking about uh, having the movie start with a line that was something like, in the distant future, in the year 2004, with the idea being that it was essentially a movie made a long time ago about uh, what was then the distant future. And I feel like there are elements of this movie that still sort of feel like that, that feel like they came um, maybe from that idea, because it it does feel like a movie that, is like very self-consciously a white American person's view of Japanese culture. Like it seems to be drawing attention to its own stereotypical or, or fetishized or or whatever, but ultimately like certainly not realistic (laughs) um, uh, view of Japanese culture. And then on the other hand, kind of everything's heightened in the movie in this, in this weird sort of peanuts kind of way Um, peanuts, like the cartoons, um,
1: At LuckyLandSlots.com,
0: available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions
1: apply. I want to get back to the element in the movie that on which I most agree with you, Inku, which is the the Greta Gerwig character, Tracy. So, in my opinion, she should have been completely axed from this movie. I find this movie really charming, and as I've said, I want to see it again. I I, I think that, like Forrest, it may be that those things, these things that are bothering you, start to impinge on me more on second viewing. But from the get go, I wanted that Greta Gerwig character out. I just wanted her out of the movie. She's completely extraneous. And not only is the racial problem really pronounced and the idea that there's this white savior chick who's going to report out the story and, and save everyone. But there's also a lot of sexism in, in the writing of her character in a way that really bothered me. I mean, Wes Anderson has never been a great writer of female characters, but I also don't consider him like a, a a toxic um, sexist presence. He just seems to be more interested in sort of guy narratives, um, as many male directors we could mention are. But uh, but the Greta Gerwig character in this movie is really a place where I felt like I almost wouldn't want to take my 12-year-old daughter, who I think would love many things about the movie and love the way the dogs are animated, and actually be really into a lot of the Japanese culture as well. But I think she would be really creeped out by what happens to that character.
0: Wait, so just, just to... So I found the Nutmeg character to to me was the more sort of obviously almost joking, like... Um,
1: this is the female dog jokely, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. Right.
0: Whose name's Nutmeg and she's described as a, a show dog and her thing is basically like looking pretty and doing these tricks, which um, are are very much supposed to be uh, ridiculous. Um, that character I totally understand. It, it's kind of this weird twist on the femme fatale where she actually just ends up being a good wife. Um But what was the problem with the Greta Gerwig character from a gender perspective?
1: I mean, it was that she had to have this crush. It was that there was this subplot, right? She has this fever to find out the truth. And she's supposed to be this dogged reporter, dogged, hardy hard, who's (laughs) trying to save the dogs off the island. And yet very early in her story, it's planted that as she researches Atari, right, she's learning about him to try to go get to the island and save him. And she gets a crush on him. Right. Right. I don't know. I just think I just felt like this 12 year old girl is is, is immediately kind of considered as a romantic prospect. And then this, this is something I didn't get to in my review because it would have been a spoiler. But I really, really can't stand the moment at the end where she has essentially helped to save the dogs. Right. Her reporting has borne fruit. And Atari is giving a speech in front of hundreds of people thanking her for her good work on the story. And then he says, oh, and she's very attractive. Right. I mean, he says something about This dogged and very attractive reporter and we see her all blushing. And this part of me just was 12 again when I heard that. Like, I just I experienced that as I would have as a kid watching that movie. Like, oh, great. I guess all that matters is that she's cute.
2: Even when a female journalist is 12, she still falls in love with her subject. Right, and is and is <laughs>
1: and is recognized at the very moment that she's being publicly recognized as having succeeded in her task. It also has to be acknowledged that she's cute and attractive. And Honestly, she has maybe about that it.
2: is like the most like Asian element in that movie. Just like the induction of like casual
1: misogyny. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was that was to me a very very weak point, and was kind of the final straw of me just wanting that character to go away.
0: Yeah, I guess I just took that as like him saying that his. Uh, admiration for her was also romantic. And so setting them up as a couple, because previously her, her attraction to him is not set up as physical. She like admires him for being a hero and kind of vice versa. So in that sense, it seems sort of mutual to me.
1: But I, oh, yeah, she I has a crush on him too. He's not be. harassing her or anything. Yeah, it's just yeah. more that that relationship has to be foregrounded at that moment. I don't know. It just, it was just sort of like, can't you be a 12 year old girl who's just good at something? Yeah. The it only... also bothered me a little bit that, I mean, this is such a tiny thing,
2: but uh, there are two dogs, right? Um, one, There are two female dogs. One is Nutmeg, and then the other one is Spots' wife. And oh, and then there's, there's Oracle. Yeah. Oracle,
1: the, the magical pug voiced by Tilda Swinton.
2: Oh, okay. Um, so let's forget about Oracle for two <laughs> seconds. And I thought it was interesting. I don't know if interesting is the right word. I thought it was notable that both of the two uh, dogs who are romantic interests also like were very like those romances were very heavily predicated on reproduction because uh, there's this like whole weird uh, fertility like quasi storyline with like one of the female dogs. And then the other one, she um, the dog, the loner dog by Brian Cranston isn't really sure if his romance with the Scarlett Johansson dog is going to work out. And it's very much like, well, do you want children? And that seems to be like the weird like uh, hinge on which like the romance might move forward or not.
0: I guess like I think that in the movie they're trying to make it a joke because like of course dogs would just be obsessed with mating, which is the word that they always use for each other. The just the the lack of female dogs is is bizarre. I mean, it's it like this movie in your review, Dana. You point out that the movie is playing on all on all of these sort of tropes of um old war movies like, and prison that break movies, and prison too. break movies. So like the great escape. And I, I had a similar association while watching the movie. Um, And and those movies are all male. And so if you kind of view it as a weird genre twist, then it starts to sort of make sense. I I I don't don't have
1: a problem. I don't have a problem in general. I mean, I don't mind when a Quentin Tarantino movie is all dudes doing stuff as long as the stuff they do isn't like overtly misogynist. I don't I don't mind that the main five, whatever the big five dogs in this movie are all guys and that they have a pretty girl dog that they're interested in. But I think there's, but it's clear where Anderson's interests lie, right, in terms right. of gender representation. And then there's these moments like the Greta Gerwig human character where I think it does start to shade over into just, just an, an actually diminishing kind of portrait of a female human.
0: Can we just quickly say that I did really like Greta Gerwig's voice performance, which I think you liked as well, Dana. I don't know how you felt about it. Oh, yeah, I should just say it. Right. I don't think it's her her fault.
1: Oh, no, not at all. It's the way the character's written and the fact that she's white and the fact that she's in there at all. Um, but we haven't really talked about, I don't think, about the stuff that's that's really fun and, and wonderful about this movie and that I would recommend people see it for, which is the immense charm of the animation. Mm-hmm. And then, as you say, about Gerwig, but about all of them, the voice cast is just Incredible. I mean, at this point, Wes Anderson is somebody who can, you know, essentially pick and choose among movie stars to do even the tiniest parts. So you have Tilda Swinton playing the psychic pug, which in a, I, what I consider a brilliant joke is considered psychic by the other dogs just because she can understand human TV. So, for right. example, she can predict the weather, right? Or she can tell them when something is brewing in this sort of, you know, the anti-dog war off on Megasaki simply because she can watch TV.
0: Which just to briefly dissect that joke and probably therefore explain it and ruin it is the joke that like it, that it, it's really unclear often with dogs whether they can actually understand what's going on on tv or not like this has long been a s- subject of fascination for me and i assume that's why it's in the movie yeah, right? yeah. i think i think that's like the some, joke basically yeah, okay
1: and the 101 dalmatians well the book and the movie are both they both also you know revolve around dogs watching tv and what that means and how much of it they understand
2: i want more dog humor
0: Oh, there's so much. I, I, I wanted more. There's like a hundred <laughs> different dog puns in the movie. There's like the underdog dog. Uh, I don't I don't know. There are so many.
1: And just, I, I felt like so many fun observations about imagining what dog psychology might be right. like. Because, of course, as these five five samurai dogs are off on their quest, they're all kind of yammering about everyday life and about the things they miss about being a domestic pet. And I kind of felt like there was some you know it's it's a little like fantastic mr fox in that way a far superior movie i think but also one that keeps on asking the question what is it to be an animal what is it to be a human you know and and how do we imagine the inside of an animal's brain and part of that glimpse into the imagined dog psychology that i think works well is the conversion of chief brian cranston's dog character from an undomesticable stray who's proud of his his inability to be tamed who's into proud of a biting- pet
2: who's proud of biting human beings.
1: Not exactly, though. He's conflicted about it. I mean, he's this character who kind of confesses guiltily that he's a biter, but he doesn't quite know why.
0: Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess we haven't even said earlier, so... Earlier in the movie, they think that they have discovered um, Spots and that Spots is dead and they just have this they find this cage that is nothing but dog bones and then a tag that says SPO and then the end of it is is like um, smudged out. So they assume that's Spots. Um, But and I assume you guys saw this coming, right?
1: No, no, not at all.
0: Oh, oh, I was like, oh, that dog, that's totally not Spots um, because we can't see the last two letters. And so it turns out that that was some other dog named Sport, R.I.P. Sport, Missy Sport. Um, and uh, they we do never find
1: out how he got in the cage, but all right, small plot hole. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I mean, of all of those thousands of dogs, it makes sense that they might forget to open one of them, I guess. Um, and so they find Sport and we learn that, uh, or, I'm sorry, they find the actual Spots and Brian Cranston's dog, who has been sort of gray and the sooty color this whole movie it turns out he really is kind of covered in some sort of soot and trash and they wash him off and and spots and the brian cranston dog are brothers and then they end up basically switching spots um (laughs) no pun intended uh where the brian cranston dog uh whose name i keep forgetting but it's Chief. chief becomes atari's dog and Protector and comes to sort of embrace domesticity, which I just briefly is also interesting because Grand Budapest Hotel is also about like people who are very happy to be servants, uh, which is a interesting theme to to like that I guess Wes Anderson is very interested in. Well,
1: Although Fantastic the, Mr. Fox also has a theme of a wild animal who eventually right. kind of submits to domestication of a sort.
2: Although the protector part, I think, is interesting because. Atari's original dog is like this highly trained, like military style dog who is armed with, say, uh, teeth that double as bombs, and he can sort of like deploy them whenever he wants to. There is a really great joke in there about how if he can throw 37 more teeth bombs, but if he does, then he won't be able to chew anything anymore. So he has to be very careful. Um, But anyway, so that. Protector part, I think, is actually important because it gives to dogs a sort of greater dignity uh, beyond sort of like being like a baseball team mascot or whatever.
1: So I feel like we need to bring the two storylines together. At this point, we have the questing dogs off on the island. We have the... Different factions of humans back on the mainland in the city of Megasaki, some fighting to save the dogs, some fighting to destroy them. And how do those two stories converge at the end? I mean, this is this is such a packed movie that I'm now realizing I'm not really qualified to spoil it because I cannot recall how it all shakes down.
0: Um, All right, I'll do my best to bring these together. I think there are basically three things that happen simultaneously. Uh, The first is that uh, Greta Gerwig's character, Tracy, the uh, foreign exchange student, um, discovers that there is a cure for snout fever and all of these dog ailments um, that has been discovered by a scientist named Watanabe. And he learns this through the Yoko Ono character, who's named Yoko Ono. uh, And she... Uh, brings this serum uh, to what I believe is an election that is happening to re-elect Kobayashi, if that's right. Certainly, it's a big televised event. And so she is able to kind of reveal live on air that this serum works and um, we see as, you know, a dog is cured. At the same time, um, all of our beloved dogs on the Isle of Dogs have freed all of the dogs from the dog displacement camps. And then somehow they've gotten off of the Island of Dogs and made it to the same televised event. And they kind of all storm in. Um, and then the the third event is the election. And so basically Kobayashi is revealed to be a, a sham and a tyrant who has kept this Um, cure down and then this is the part i don't totally understand
2: and also probably in the pocket of big cat because he always has cats running out of his clothes whenever
0: right well and and then earlier so the thing i was gonna say i don't totally understand is he seems to flip really quickly like he he doesn't seem to actually hate dogs right um and he's like you're right and uh and i think yeah. Are we just supposed to be learning that he's like a stooge? There's also a moment earlier where we see he has a back tattoo, which I recall being a dog or something, which was maybe foreshadowing that he didn't really hate I dogs. it was a cat. Was it a cat? I thought... That would make more sense.
2: I thought it was like a weird Yakuza thing.
0: Did you guys buy his like sudden reversal?
1: I mean, I can say that I was moved by it. I mean, this this may just be my desperation in the Trump era for any public official to have any accountability. But there's this moment when he is ashamed before the camera and he turns away and says something that's translated by, I think, by the Francis McDormand interpreter as I have no honor and, uh, and it was, to me, kind of a moving moment. You know, any time that a villain... It's like the, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas or Scrooge or something, right? I mean, anytime the villain has some kind of conversion at the end, there's something kind of a, a more morally ample vision there than, than there is in your average superhero movie where the villain is just there to be crushed.
0: Right, and, may, and maybe the movie is just, like, really cynical about politicians in general because I do remember there's a funny line at the end where they... I guess it must be the narrator who says something like... And then the corruption... And graft just returned to normal, sustainable levels or something like it doesn't corruption didn't go away altogether. It just went back to normal, which is like, please let corruption in the United States return to normal, very high, but nonetheless sustainable. levels. Right.
1: I mean, this is a case I haven't even talked about whether this movie is trying to be topical or not. I mean, I do think that, as I was saying earlier, that Anderson is starting to reach for broader, more political and historical questions in in his work. But I don't think that this movie is trying to be directly topical about American politics, which I'm glad about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the production history suggests that he's been making it for a long time and only realized how sort of resonant it would be more recently. It does seem like regardless of, of whether it's about any particular aspects of Japanese or American history, um, you know, such as those Korean camps or, or internment camps in the U.S., I think it's very clearly about, like, fear of the other and immigration and refugees and about, like, accepting the other um, into your country and your community, right? I mean, in that sense, it seems topical. That's that's a perennial, I suppose.
2: But that's, I think, what I find so unsatisfying about it. Because um, when the mayor has that very quick conversion, I didn't really feel anything. The other moment at which I really expected for there to be like a larger emotional moment is when the two dogs who are brothers, meet one another and then realize that they're related. And it's just like, oh, okay, like that's the thing. And then they move on and then they go start their own individual families. They, they almost seem like markers of like where the story is in that like it's time to like wrap up the story. And so like you have to have like the mayor uh, apologize. Uh, by the way, a Japanese character saying I have no honor is a little something. Um, and I think that by the time we got to the end of the movie, I was already so annoyed by like everything that had like come before that I wasn't very invested. But the fact that like all of these reunions and conclusions were handled so superficially sort of just like added to my disappointment with the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're cert- certainly handled very quickly, right? I, I, whenever, so there are various moments in this movie where dogs' eyes kind of well up with tears, and I will uh, confess that my eyes would often also be welling up with tears during those moments. So I think I was more moved by them than you, but I agree they go by very quickly, and and that's part of what reminds me of like like that happens in Budapest Hotel too, where you, for example, learn spoiler alert that one of the main characters in the movie and the main character's principal love interest you know, you learn that she died in just like a total aside um, that you could almost miss it the first time you see the movie. And and then, it, like, it turns out that that's very deliberate because the movie is kind of about this kind of repression of emotion. And so I wonder if watching it again will find kind of greater resonance in those moments that seem to flit by or, or whether they will continue to feel um, kind of all too fleeting and maybe the movie itself is just sort of... Uh, The
2: the other storyline that really made no sense to me and that really should have been developed further is any sort of elaboration about Atari's relationship with his adopted uncle and the fact that the movie begins essentially because the uncle like very callously says like, oh, my nephew, you have one mammal in this world that you love and I'm just going to like use all of my political capital to get rid of that dog. And then when that uh, boy comes back after how many days of being missing and it was like a huge media scandal in Megasaki when he returns and then the mayor isn't really given any sort of like moment in which to realize his own wrongs. Um, I don't know. It, it just like felt like this like giant emotional, a black hole in the m- middle of the movie because to me that's partly what the movie should have been about and I think the illusion of that storyline sort of suggests like a Wes Anderson like not really thinking like the emotional aspects of this movie through.
1: I think he th- he does better with the dogs in that respect than with the humans yeah. and it seems like it's not that unusual in in animated worlds that the Animals. I mean, this goes goes to the Uncanny Valley problem in a way, although the human animation is rendered in a, in an interesting way with this kind of these hard characters made of resin. But their emotions are a little bit resinous too. They they're less accessible than the dog's emotions and the dog's story arcs are. I mean, it sounds like if you're already a Wes Anderson hater as you were going in and go, this movie is not gonna convert you. I never you. go
2: into a movie hoping I'll hate it. So And I love dogs. I have two dogs. This movie was literally made for me. I mean, sorry. This movie was in some parts made for me. And all I wanted to do was sort of revel in dogginess. And it just didn't work for me.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure this movie is going to win new converts necessarily. I feel like Fantastic Mr. Fox probably remains the one Wes Anderson movie that I... Th- Did you not even that's, like no, Fantastic No, that's Mr.
2: Fox? the last Wes Anderson movie I liked.
0: Yeah, I think that's the one movie that I think of his that basically anyone can like. And I think this one is going to be more polarizing.
1: Yeah, but I I would say that stop-motion animation seems to be a world that he gets very excited by, you know, as a creator. I mean, if nothing else, this movie looks like the most incredible, elaborate dollhouse you could possibly imagine.
0: Right. And then it's in the collision of stop-motion animation with, like, these very real world problems, like world historical issues, that it gets more iffy. Yeah, or that's one place anyway.
1: Yeah, there's some there's some collisions of, of uh, idea and intention and execution here that don't completely work. But I would still send someone who's even mildly interested in Wes Anderson animation and or dogs to uh, to go and see what they think. Would you send your daughter? I'm trying to decide whether to take her. I'll certainly watch it with her when it comes out on on DVD. She's not hugely into going to the theater to see movies, and I have to really cheerlead to get her to do that, which, as a film critic, of course, is a parental disappointment. But uh, but she loves Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's probably in her top five movies in the world. So she'll, I'll probably get her to, to see this with me. It's a little sad. It's got some some rough stuff. But ultimately, none of the good guys die.
0: Yeah, why is this movie PG-13 exactly? Is it just be- for like a, a dismembered, dogs
1: yeah i would suspect it's the graphic you know the few graphic moments um and things like a kid with a (laughs) permanent screw in his head
2: but can i just say like i feel like chicken run for example is a much 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 darker movie so i don't feel like we need to like oversell the darkness of this movie
0: well but i think that so i actually thought of chicken run too because chicken run literally is well it is almost exactly a remake of the great escape um I think they may even use the song. It's pretty clearly The Great Escape. Uh, And it is taking, uh, you know, which is a movie that takes place during World War II. And it takes, uh, in that sense, like a a real historical atrocity and makes it into cutesy animal fun uh, animated in stop motion. And yet, like, it doesn't bother anybody with Chicken Run because it doesn't really, like, there are no glimpses of... Uh, you know, disturbing um dismemberments, or they don't ever say like uh, in the words internment camps or anything like that in in Chicken Run, so it gets away with it. And I think Wes Anderson is like very deliberately bringing that stuff in and making it so you kind of have to think about that stuff, and you can't just be like, oh, haha, it's like Great Escape, but with dogs.
1: Yeah, and I guess the question is whether you consider that that mix of tones to be something that's queasy and creepy or something that's kind of groundbreaking and innovative. All right. Well, thank you. This is such an illuminating discussion. Now I want to see it again even more. (laughs) Thanks so much, Inku, for coming in. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) And thanks, Forrest. Thanks, Dana. Let's spoil again soon. And thank you to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future, or any other feedback you'd like to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Ingu Kang and Forrest Wickman, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening. Step into the world of power. Loyalty.